hope everybody is doing well. Um, we're going to be doing this Bible study through podcast and YouTube. Uh, hopefully not for too many weeks here, but for now, we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, and uh, hopefully get through chapter 3, verse 2. What we see here in Hebrews 2.16, it says, For indeed he who does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now that's kind of important for a, a few reasons. First of all, um, certain things here that are kind of between the lines a Jew would have known. And that is that these angels that are being talked about, I think most of us as Christians, as we look at this, we think, oh, he doesn't give aid to angels, and we just automatically think angels are good. But any Jew would have understood that these are not good angels he's talking about, but rather the fallen ones, the fallen angels. Uh, they would have had the book of Enoch in mind. Again, I've talked about this before, but the book of Enoch is not something that's in Scripture. Uh, the Jews, however, did have it in um, one of their sacred writings. They, they didn't have it in what, you know, even there, what would we'd call a, a canonized Bible. But um, they did consider it very important and uh, uh, reliable in a lot of ways. And it was also found with the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. So I don't think we should just throw out the book of Enoch. But nonetheless, the Jews knew the book of Enoch quite well. And they knew that uh, in uh, the book of Enoch, it talks about Enoch being the seventh from Adam. And uh, which agrees with what Jude chapter 1 verse 14 says. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones and so on. Well that is exactly quoted from the book of Enoch. So Enoch is in our Bible. Um, but anyway, they would have understood that um, Enoch talked about these fallen angels. Uh, which, by the way, is in agreement with the New Testament as well. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So here, clearly, he's not talking about good angels. The, the same thing as in Jude 1, 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And so what we're seeing here is that clearly there were angels that have been fallen uh, or have fallen. Now that's what Jude talks about. Now Jude, or not Jude, uh, Enoch, Jude does talk about it. And I'm going to give you an example of that here in a moment. So uh, just for now, understand that the new and the old... Are, are lining up, and we must get in that habit of learning. When we look at Hebrews 2, and there's something that needs to be explained, we don't just access our church doctrine and our culture. We access the Old Testament. We access the Bible to understand what it's talking about. And so uh, when it says that he did not give aid to angels, what is that talking about? Well, he does give it to the seed of Abraham. He gives it to the godly, but not to these fallen angels. 
Well, really, the best way to understand what that is talking about, we see Peter and Jude here, but Enoch gives us some other details that I think are quite important and really do make this crystal clear. Look at what Enoch chapter 12, verse 3 says. And I, Enoch, was blessing the Lord of majesty and the king of the ages, and lo, the watchers called me, Enoch the scribe, and said to me, Enoch, thou scribe of righteousness, go declare to the watchers of the heavens, who have left the high heaven with the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women, and have done as the children of earth do, and have taken unto themselves wives. This, of course, is referring to Genesis 6-4, when the sons of God married the daughters of men, and giants roamed the earth. He goes on, you have wrought great destruction on the earth. And so what's happening is, uh, we see that these angels, A, had produced offspring, they had children of the earth, they had left heaven, or their proper domain, as we see Jude and, and Peter talking about, but they're coming to Enoch, the scribe of righteousness. And it goes on here in verse 5, Ye shall have no peace, nor forgiveness of sin, and inasmuch as they delight themselves and their children, the murder of their beloved ones shall they see and over the destruction of their children shall they lament, and shall make supplication unto eternity. But mercy and peace shall you not attain. So, they produced offspring, just like Jeremiah 52. We see that Zedekiah had rebelled against the king of Babylon, and his children were killed right before his eyes, and then they gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. So that was the very last thing that uh, he was able to see. Well, in essence, that's what's happening here to these angels. This is the pain of judgment that is taking place or going to take place and that is trying to be pictured here. Well, it goes on in chapter 13. It says, Enoch went and said, Azazel, thou shalt have no peace. A severe sentence has gone forth against thee to put thee in bonds, and thou shalt not have toleration nor request granted to thee because of the unrighteousness which thou hast taught, and because of all the works of godliness and unrighteousness and sin which thou hast shown to men. Then I went and I spoke to them all together, and they were all afraid, and fear and trembling seized them. They besought me to draw up a petition for them, that they might find forgiveness and to read their petition in the presence of the Lord of heaven. Well, when Enoch says you have no hope, the angels basically are begging him for help. They were terrified. And this is the kind of picture the author of Hebrews is trying to show us. Okay, This kind of, of um, judgment is at hand, and that we should be begging for forgiveness, because, you see, he withheld aid from the angels, but not from us. And so we have something to be thankful for. We have hope, whereas these angels had no hope. It goes on here in verse 5 of chapter 13. For from thenceforth they could not speak nor lift up their eyes to heaven for shame of their sins for which they had been condemned. Then I, Enoch speaking here, wrote out their petition in the prayer in regard to their spirits and their deeds individually and in regard to their requests that they should have forgiveness and length of days. I went off and sat down at the waters of Dan and basically he says I read their petition till I fell asleep. In other words, these angels are seeking Enoch, the scribe of righteousness, to have him be a mediator between them and God. 
And I love that because obviously there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus, as Timothy tells us. And this is why we, we don't you know pray to Mary or pray to anybody else or have any other saints try to, to intercede for us or be a mediator or to be somewhat closer to God or take our prayers to Him. Our prayers go, go directly to heaven. We see that even in Revelation when it talks about the, the prayers of the saints and the altar of incense going up before God, the smoke. So anyway, Enoch does write this petition and he does present it to the Lord. In verse 8, we're going to see here what happens though. Behold, a dream came to me and visions fell upon me and I saw visions of chastisement. A voice came bidding me to tell it to the sons of heaven and re reprimand them. So, the voice is saying, no, there's no forgiveness. You're going, to, you're going to have to go and reprimand them. You're going to have to pronounce their sins again before them, which, by the way, is also a picture of end times when even in Revelation, we see that uh, everyone is going to be rewarded according to what he has done. To those who did good, they will be rewarded. To those who did bad, their judgments are going to be reminded. They're going to be reprimanded again. Anyway, it goes on here in verse 4. I wrote out your petition, and in my vision it appeared thus, that your petition will not be granted unto you throughout all the days of eternity, and that judgment has been finally passed upon you. Yes, your petition will not be granted to you. And so there is no aid or forgiveness for these angels for an eternity. There is no hope. This is also why Peter says that the angels long to look into the gospel that we have, so here's something that we have, this gospel, this opportunity for forgiveness, that we have mercy, and we, we treat it as something unholy and uncommon. That's a scary thing. Even the angels long to look into it. We should not treat this great gift of mercy that Jesus has given us as uh, a small thing. So, again... It says he does not give aid to the angels here in verse 16. I think now that kind of gives us a better picture. But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Again, guys, this is a huge deal. This is something that we cannot take lightly. And uh, if we do treat it lightly, I really question whether we truly understand what the gospel is. Because um, we should be terrified without the mercy of Jesus Christ. And if we treat it as unholy, maybe we don't have it, uh, Hebrews uh, says. <coughs> Excuse me. John 8.38 says this, I speak what I have seen with my father, and do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So here we see the Jews were saying that we have a future because we're the seed of Abraham. But Jesus says, no, you're not. See, in the same chapter, he acknowledges that not all who are of Abraham are Abraham's children. In other words, it's not just because that you are genetically a Jew are you saved. As a matter of fact, you're not even a child of Abraham just because you're a descendant of Abraham genetically. What he says, and we'll look at this later, uh, in greater detail, or you can go to one of my presentations. Uh, there's a podcast and a YouTube called Our Identity. Um, look at that one and you'll see this in greater detail. But the bottom line 
is you are not God's children because of genetic descent, but because of the faith of Abraham. Let's look at this just a little bit here in Romans 9. It says, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Okay, genetically is what he's saying here. Nor are they all children because they are his seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. In other words, we can see that Abraham had two children, Hagar and Ishmael. Both of them came from his seed, but only one was called Israel, Isaac. And then later we see Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Both are from his seed, but only one is counted as Israel, Jacob. Why? Because that's the promise. The promise went through there. What was the promise? The promise of the seed. And this is what we see in Galatians 3.29. If you are the Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So therefore, when we become a believer in Christ Jesus, we have faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We now become children of Abraham. This is what Hebrews 2.16 is referring to in talking about the seed of Abraham. But only, I repeat, only those who know Jesus will get aid. They get that mercy. Well, moving on to verse 17. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here we seeing that he had to be made like his brethren, like man. And of course the scriptures testify that Jesus was full man and full God. Not two persons, just one. But it answers, that word that is an important word, that, because. In other words, explaining why he made himself like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest okay, in, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation. Now that word propitiation is something we don't really use much here today. What is propitiation? It's basically the act of stepping in and taking the place of someone. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, it was us that should have been up there dying for our sins. But he took our place. He filled in for us and took our sins, conquering them through his resurrection. But bottom line is what we're seeing here is that the reason he became like man was so that he could relate, so that he could be merciful, and so that he could uh, fill in for us. But the only way that could happen, because we deserve death because of sin. You see, sin isn't something that separates us from being blessed on earth. And yes, it can do that, but primarily, sin is what separates us from God, from salvation. And so, in our own sin, if God wasn't that propitiation, if he wouldn't step in for us and become flesh so that flesh could die, it would have been impossible for mercy to take place. It's how it had to happen. We read in Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, by the way, in the form of man, in the likeness of man, he became obedient. Now, that means that we, too, can be obedient. Now, I'm not saying we can be perfect. We cannot, and we cannot fully obey in this flesh. However, we can do all things through Christ who lives in us. Because, you see, like he took on the form of man, we now have taken on the form of the temple, the tabernacle. We are the, the place in which the Holy Spirit, God, lives. And it is through that power that he enables us to obey. Well, <clears throat> that's a very important point to make here, though, that he did this. He took this flesh upon himself in order that he could fill in what had to happen. He could take uh, our sins on himself, but only on that cross, not in his actions. Now, in verse 18, it goes on, or in that he himself was has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. First of all, this means that Jesus knows our struggles, and, and even then some. Okay, I think uh, none of us have gone to the cross and suffered the kind of death that, that he did for us. Uh, but that's even nothing compared to taking the sins of the world upon himself when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he took upon himself. When the enemy says that God doesn't care and that he can't empathize with you, Okay, that's a lie. That is a lie of the devil, and I'm telling you, I think every one of us have experienced that. That the devil wants us to think, God doesn't care for me. But that's not what the scriptures are saying. He's saying that he gave his only son to die for you. That's how much he cared for you. He's saying that he knows the troubles that you are going through, the trials, because he can empathize with that. He suffered. He took on our flesh and he can relate. And so Hebrews 4.15, actually before we get there, <coughs> let me just jump ahead to uh, the next verse here, Hebrews 5.1, because it shows the, the point of the high priest here was to make sacrifices so that he could have compassion and sympathize with the people. Now, Jesus overcame without sin, whereas these high priests, they they couldn't. So what we see here is every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so the high priest, the first thing they did is they went and they made a sacrifice for themselves because they were sinful. Point is, is they understood. They understood because they had their own failures that they, uh, you know, somebody would, would lose their temper. A high priest, I'm sure, could relate to that. That's what it's saying here. It says, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. And this is partly 
uh, in part, I should say, what Jesus did in taking our sins upon him, in taking our flesh and walking, experiencing hunger, experiencing temptations, but passing every test that was thrown at him, being tempted, but yet not falling into the temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says there in the middle, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. But here's that important part too, yet without sin. And so again, he is able to help those who are tempted. He's able to help us because he knows. Not only just knowing what's in our heart, what's in our minds, but knowing what it means to have flesh. Knowing what it means to choose to live by the Spirit. You see, he did only what his Father told him to do. And that's an example for us that we should be living our lives by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Romans talks about that. And it's a choice that we make every day, sometimes every moment of every day. Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, this virgin, the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. You know, I think sometimes this is... Uh, this verse is taken a little bit out of uh, out of context. I've heard it uh, used in reference to the age of accountability. I'm not going to get into that much outside to say um, that's not what this verse is saying. Again, this is New King James Version here. And it says, Curds and honey he shall eat, not until he knows how to refuse evil, but that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. In other words, what was going on here is this is speaking of a time of, of deprivation, depriving himself of the pleasures of this world. Curds and honey he shall eat. Okay, That he is God with us in flesh and in our struggles. That he is not going to um, rely or seek all the pleasures of this world so that he may know to refuse evil and choose good. This is also why Hebrews 2.18 said that we, you know, that he gives aid to those who are tempted because he will help us. He can, he will, and he understands. So anyway, that's kind of how uh, chapter 2 closes out. We're going to move into chapter 3 here just a little bit today. It says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So consider this carefully that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah, but not just the Messiah, he's the high priest. And not just high priest, but he's God. In other words, we see that uh, Jesus is three things, and Hebrews is really going to be talking about all three of these things. He says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. 
So we've already seen at the beginning that clearly Hebrews is pointing, he is God. And now he's saying, not only is he God, but he's high priest. This is what the Messiah was supposed to do. He is our priest, the one that intercedes for us, the one that steps in on our behalf. And rather than sacrificing animals, became a sacrifice himself. It says, he was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now, that seems to be a strange place to put Moses. Why put Moses in here when he's talking about Jesus being a high priest? Well, any Jewish person would have understood this very clearly, because to express this to a Jew meant you, as a Jew, were waiting for the one who was a prophet like Moses to come. And now he's saying, consider the apostle and high priest like Moses. You see, Deuteronomy 18.18 18 said this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and he shall, or and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, will he speak in my name, I will require it of him. See, guys, a Jew understood that there was one like Moses coming. And this is why the book of Hebrews is saying, look, this is the one like Moses. This is the Messiah, the Mashiach. So he says, I will put my words in his mouth. Isn't that interesting? Jesus himself, like Moses, was only to speak what God told him to say. Jesus only spoke the words that the Father told him to say. Okay, and whoever will not hear my words, what was to happen? He says, I'm going to pass judgment on them. Jesus says the same thing. He who does not do what I say is cursed. So you're to look for one like Moses. Here he is. I'm going to put my words in his mouth, and this is what Jesus declared. If you don't listen to him, you're a dead man. If you don't listen to Jesus, likewise, you are a dead man. So there is a lot of fear and trembling that comes with this passage in Deuteronomy, and the Jews knew it well. And so this is why here in Hebrews 3, we're opening up the gates to, to see this is the one like Moses, that direct comparison to him. And by the way, Moses was considered in some ways a, a priest as well. So that would have made a connection. We also read here in John 12, verse 48, kind of what I've been talking about. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. It's exactly what Deuteronomy 18 was saying about Moses' words. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that when most you know, Christians of today read this verse here in John chapter 12, these verses, that we don't make a single connection to Moses with that. But don't kid yourself, every Jew in the hearing of Jesus' words here knew exactly what he was saying. I am the one like Moses. Okay, He was declaring what Deuteronomy just said, that he is a prophet like Moses. I am he 
is basically what Jesus was saying. It was Moses, by the way, who anointed the tabernacle and made sacrifices for his son as high priest. Because only a priest could approach the altar. And so this shows that he was a prophet, Moses was, a priest and judge, just like we see being outlined here in Hebrews for Yeshua Jesus. So let me give you some details here showing Moses was a picture of Christ. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, verse 4. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshuron, which is Jerusalem, when the leaders of the people were gathered all the tribes of Israel together. Exodus 7, 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. I love that because, first of all, guys, who has prophets? Only a God can have a prophet. A prophet is someone who goes and speaks your word to them, and, and it's a supernatural thing. So only God, a God, can have a prophet. Okay, we see that's why there's a false prophet for, for the devil. He is a little G God. But, so even in the sense here that it says, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, Moses in the Old Testament is, is being elevated to that position of a God. And then if you're a God, you have a prophet, and that's what Aaron was for Moses. So here we see that he is a God. We see that he was a king there in Deuteronomy 33. So this is a, a very problematic verse for many Jews in some ways, but it says it in the Old Testament, and so they have a hard time understanding uh, what to do with this. It says Moses was as, when by the way that word God there is Elohim. Okay, it, it's not just like some ritual God, it's, it's Elohim. That sounds just like Jesus. Only God has his own prophet, just like Moses had Aaron as a prophet. Uh, Jesus had John the Baptist, right? So Jesus came with a prophet. Okay, that yes, Jesus in a sense was a prophet, but he also came with one, John the Baptist, who proclaimed him. <coughs> Excuse me again. <coughs> he was a priest and a prophet as well. So Moses, by the way, uh, he went up and he fasted for 40 days, got the law, the Ten Commandments, and he began his ministry then, didn't he? That was kind of the beginning of his ministry for Moses when he came down that mountain. Well, the same thing happened with Jesus. He's baptized, uh, which, by the way, was Moses crossing the Red Sea, baptized first, then the commandments. So Jesus was baptized, and then he goes out into the wilderness where he fasts and is tempted for 40 days, and he's beginning his ministry. Both Moses and Jesus, uh, you know, delivered their people. Both of them interceded for their people. Remember that uh, Moses went up on the mountain. God said, get away from him. I'm going to destroy him. And what's the answer? No, Lord, not let it not be. Blot me out of your book. I'll die in their place. He was interceding and pleading for the people. And that's what Jesus did, dying for us. And even saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I'll tell you, I think there's a lot of people in the church today 
who are going to be in heaven because of those very words. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. And I'm one of those people. You know, I have lived in ignorance of God's word in so many ways, especially, you know, uh, growing up in the church. And I still believe that there's many things I am ignorant of. And it's good to know that we have someone to intercede for us in that way. But I am learning that to become less ignorant about God and His Word, you have to read it. You have to study it. You have to be in it. And rather than turning on the TV, you take time to, to look at, at things like this. So, how is Jesus a prophet like Moses? Exodus 5.21, they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So when Moses goes here before Pharaoh, or before, not before Pharaoh, but before the people, the people are, are upset with him because Pharaoh is uh, making their life more miserable. And they say, because you have made us, you know, abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in his servants. He, we hate you. And they, they hate you. They hate me because of you. Therefore, we hate you. And this is exactly what Jesus has warned us. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You see, we are those people that are complaining against Moses, except for it's Jesus that people complain about. They said, man, you, because I'm a Christian, I'm different. I stand apart. I'm supposed to maybe dress different. I'm supposed to eat different. I'm supposed to talk different. I'm supposed to live my life differently. And the world thinks I'm funny or, or, or odd. And as a result, we abhor or run away from Jesus. We don't want his help. I got news for you guys. Just like those people, their only help was Moses. That is the case for us. And those that did not take the side of Moses ended up being destroyed and judged. And the same is true for us today. That we must not be like that. Jesus warned not only that they would hate us because of him, but he said, consider the cost of following Jesus. No one's going to build a house and then, you know, not have enough money to finish it. If you do, you're going to look silly. So before you start following me, consider the cost. Consider what it means to follow me, because it isn't just saying, oh, I want Jesus in my heart. Now I'm a Christian. No, you see, you need to consider what it means to be a Christian. And what it means is if you love me, you will do what I say. Now again, I'm not talking about salvation here, but I'm talking about if you truly do know Jesus, if you truly love him, if you truly have a relationship with him, you will obey and follow him just as these people did with Moses. Because if they didn't follow him, they weren't crossing that Red Sea. That's the truth, guys. And this is a verse that I think that we need to reflect and meditate upon. Because once again, Jesus is like Moses. Okay, Moses' mission was to deliver the people of Israel. 
but the people of Israel had to follow him in order to be delivered. Now Moses did miracles as well to show his authority to even do this delivering, right? We, we have all of those 10 plagues and whatnot. Guess what Jesus does? Jesus does all kinds of miracles to show his authority. Even the Pharisees say, what authority will you show us? What miracle will you show us that you have this authority? And he says, no, no miracle or, or wonder is going to be shown you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And even that one they didn't understand. The sign of the prophet Jonah, by the way, in Matthew 12, was pointing that he would resurrect after three days. So, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 13, Moses' own brothers asks, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you remember when Moses had, had killed um, the Egyptian? He thought the people would follow him because he was standing up for them. But they don't just like we don't, even though Jesus has stood up for us, many don't follow him. Well, the next day he's out and he sees a couple of Hebrews fighting, and when he steps in, one of his own brothers, his own people say, who made you prince and judge? Well, that's exactly what happens with Jesus as well. He comes and he comes healing, he comes, uh, you know, casting out demons, and his own brethren, his own people say, what gives you the authority to do these things? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? So everybody was questioning his authority. I think you can clearly see that Jesus is one like Moses. In Exodus 2.16 it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water. They filled their troughs to water their flock, father's flock. Then the shepherd came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Again, this is when Moses fled from Egypt after killing that Egyptian, and it had become known. And he goes, and uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian, uh, had one of his daughters, Zipporah, was there. And uh, basically, Moses steps in to deliver by chasing away some of these other shepherds and uh, helping the daughters out. Now, it's interesting, it mentions seven daughters drawing water. Okay, and these shepherds are the ones that are causing the trouble. In Revelation chapter 7, we see there are seven churches to water the flock, the church, you might say. There are seven churches, and there are shepherds who come in to pervert the flock. The Bible warns us about that all over the place about in Jude, you know, how people uh, secret, they have secretly slipped in among you and they want to distort and pervert the grace of God. Well, Moses is the one that stood up to protect them. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus steps in and protects the church and says, I'm here to water your flock. I'm here to help I am the living water. And he says, I am the word. And if you want to keep these you know, false shepherds, false prophets, then follow me and my word. Numbers 11, 11 says, Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid this burden or the burden of all these people on me? You see, I can't even imagine being Moses and what he put up with. 
because bottom line is the people did nothing but complain, accuse, and not appreciate what Moses did. And all of their sins, all of their cares, all of their judgments that they'd have disagreements between one another, they were coming before Moses. And he says, you have laid the burden of all these people on me. Well, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. All of our burdens, all of our cares, all of our inability to keep those commandments fully have been laid on Jesus. Now, again, that doesn't mean we don't keep those commandments. It doesn't mean we don't have a desire to do so. As Paul said, I desire to do what is good. Why? Because he had the Spirit of God. He had the law written on his heart, and therefore he had a desire to obey and listen to God. That's what we need. Isaiah 53, 6 kind of puts this together and compares. It says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think Matthew 27, a perfect picture of this, is when Jesus, his last words on the cross there, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why all of this burden? So, once again, a prophet like Moses. Exodus 4.24, it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. This is speaking of Moses because he had not been circumcised. Well, then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then he said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now this has always been a passage that has just been very confusing to me. And it's also an enigma to the Jews. They don't really understand this because without Christ, you can't understand it. This is a picture of Christ who became a husband of blood for his bride. You see, in Galatians especially, you're going to see that the whole topic of the book of Galatians is over this, this argument about circumcision. And we see it in Acts 15 where the Jews, uh, there were some that were saying, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And the reason they said that, by the way, is because that's what it said in the Old Testament. However, we see that Jesus is trying to make a picture that there is another type of circumcision that's going to take place. That circumcision is a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. A getting rid of the flesh. A cutting around of that which is of the human nature. When Jesus died on the cross, we see that that is a picture of a spiritual circumcision, a bloody circumcision that took place. And so Jesus became a husband of blood because of the circumcision done on the cross. And again, Galatians is going to open this up a lot more. I'm not going to get into it too much for now, outside of to point that out that um, this is why in the New Testament we don't see a getting rid of the Old Covenant, getting rid of circumcision. We see a different type of circumcision taking place. Uh, Colossians 2 talks about this as well in, in saying that we are now circumcised not by the hands of men, 
but through baptism, a circumcision takes place. And then we also see the New Testament saying that there's that baptism, that we were all baptized into Christ Jesus through the cross, that we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. And so we see all three of these things being connected, that circumcision is like baptism, baptism is like that cross, a, a going under, a death, a cutting off, all of these things uh, by blood for forgiveness, a death by blood. So anyway, uh, the Lord desired to kill Jesus, you might say, that we might have life. And that is what happened here. The Lord desired to kill Moses that others might have life, that he would be a husband of blood. And so Moses, by the way, also kind of dies. Well, he does die, but he's also resurrected in a sense. Uh, we see in Jude 1.9, this is after Moses goes up on the mountain. He's not allowed to go into the promised land, and he does die. And it says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So in a sense, uh, we, we see that the, God took Moses' body and buried it somewhere. But we see that he's resurrected. How? Why? Well, because in Matthew 17, and who is it that shows up? Um, it is Moses and Elijah that show up on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. So Moses does get to go into the promised land spiritually that way. Uh, also, very important, Matthew 24, the angels, we see blow the trumpet and the angels go to bring the saints into the kingdom of God. What we see here is that it's an angel that brings Moses into the promised land. So kind of the same picture there of a resurrection, uh, just like at the end of the world. So this little tiny statement that we saw here in Hebrews about Moses is vital and this is not going to escape the mind of the Hebrew listener. The author of Hebrews is blowing their mind from the scripture showing who Jesus is. Okay, we, we saw in chapter 1, they're saying there is no question Jesus is God. He's the creator. He forgives sins, things that only God can do. Then in chapter 2, we see here that he is the high priest and now as well, a prophet like Moses. And so the beginning of this book clearly is trying to, to identify who Jesus is, that everything that you've been looking for in the Messiah, Yeshua fits that bill. He is the Messiah. And so I hope that all of you guys listening are going to uh, reflect on this too and realize that this Jesus is also your Messiah. He can be your Messiah. Okay, because you don't have to be a descendant of Abraham by physical descent. You just have to have the faith of Abraham. And then when you have the faith of Abraham, that spirit is given to us to obey. But again, don't forget that it says that just as Jesus told these Jews who were so proud that they were physical descendants of Abraham, he says, you know, don't think that just because you're Abraham's uh, children that it means anything, because he says, if your father was Abraham, 
you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, if you really think you are a child of Abraham, you are a child of faith, your works will show that. Because a, fruit, a tree without good fruit is dead. So keep that in mind as well, and uh, hope this has been a blessing for you.